Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. Welcome back to Meet the Early Day Saints. We're joined today by Ariel Bybee Lawton, an independent historian in Houston, Texas, and she wrote a chapter called Church Organization, Priesthood Office, and Women's Leadership Roles in the book Ancient Christians. Ariel, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me on, Blair. It's an honor. How did you hear about this project that this book was happening? Um, Well, my good friend, Jason Coombs, Jason and I went to graduate school together. Uh, He was at Chapel Hill when I was at Duke. And um, he kind of called me up and asked me to be involved. He knew that I had studied women and early Christianity. That's my field of emphasis. So he really wanted a piece on that for the book. Hmm. A lot of the contributors are at Brigham Young University. You're an independent historian. Uh, Maybe talk a little bit about your experience in the academy and and what you're doing now. Thanks for asking that question. It's been, been really interesting. So unlike a lot of my colleagues after graduate school. My husband's an attorney. We kind of followed the money instead of (laughs) prioritizing my academic career. Um, And we ended up in Houston, where I spent about a decade just raising some small children and having that be my life for a while. BYU has been very generous with me, and several of my colleagues and contacts and former professors there have reached out over the years and just kind of included me in different ways, different projects. So I continue to write and be involved in different seminars and conferences that they've done there. Mm. So let's go back in time to women in early Christianity, back in the early, in the Greco-Roman world. Women were considered inferior to men. Your your chapter sort of starts out by saying, you know, there was this imbalance in how men and, and women were perceived. So what was the culture like? What were the expectations for women at the time that Christianity was just beginning? Yeah, that's a great question, too. I mean, the Greco-Roman world was large, so you're going to have a lot of different cultures. It encompass a lot of different countries. But if we can just make some generalizations about Rome, um, as a whole, Roman women had it better than women in many other cultures, including Greece. I mean, women in Israel had it better than a lot of other cultures did, too. But still, these were very heavily patriarchal societies where women were going to be considered intellectually, socially inferior, where they're going to be considered more properly belonging to the private sphere. So the home and Getting married and having children was, you know, the primary expectation and function of most women. Now, that being said, um, and I talk about this a little bit in the chapter, there were some special opportunities that allowed women to kind of find loopholes in this system and kind of get on top. And one of them just for Roman women was if you were highborn, if you were an aristocrat, if you were born to a family with a lot of money, or if you had married and your husband died and you found yourself independently wealthy. You would have a lot of sway in society. You could be a patron of, you know, different causes, clubs or politicians even, and kind of exercise your voice that way, even though, you know, women couldn't go directly into politics or the Senate or be involved in a lot of ways in which they can today. A lot of this inequality depended on your birth, maybe more of it, because if you were a lowborn man, you probably have less freedoms or rights in Roman society than you would if you were an aristocratic widow with a lot of money. So Mm. there were some loopholes. Give us a day in the life of a not elite uh, woman at the time who lived in Rome might have been encountering Christian missionaries. What was her life like day to day? Well, that's a good question. I mean, of course, we have less material to go on about lower class women 
than we do upper-class women. I mean, upper-class women are the ones we really have a lot of records for. But, you know, just um, to kind of piece together maybe some things, we have a lot of these women who encountered missionaries might have, or, or Christians for the first time would probably have done so from a friend or a family member. Um, they would have met in another woman's house, maybe, to, you know, and this woman would share, you know, this is Christianity, and I met these missionaries. I met another woman who's a member of the church. This is kind of how it was spreading would be through social networks and organizations, groups and gatherings that way, much less, you know, with random men knocking on your door like they might today. I mean, that really wouldn't have been a socially acceptable way for the gospel to spread at that time. Um, Men, strange men coming into a woman's house have been completely forbidden. So they're going to meet sometimes through their servants. Their servants might, you know, meet, bring the message back. A lot of times, we see middle or upper class women converting to Christianity and then converting everybody in their household. So then suddenly all their servants and their children and everybody else joins, maybe not their husband, but everybody else. So day to day, women might be involved in the same similar kind of things that a lot of people have to deal with today, like food preparation and sure. and maybe, you know, all this kind of like basic stuff. What about the higher class women? Were they doing similar things or what were they doing? Day-to-day? Yes, I mean, an upper class woman would have been the kind of the lord of her domain in many senses in the Roman Empire. I mean, her husband would be out in the public doing public things, ideally, and she would be running a, a household, supervising servants, you know, engaged in in the things that were going on in kind of a lord of the manor kind of way. Lower class women is what women always have worked. They often worked in small businesses, you know, with their families. They um, had cottage industries. They had stores and shops that they ran with their husbands and then independently if their husbands died or were gone for some reason. So, I mean, as far as class difference, yeah, there's going to be a radical difference in, in women's work, but as a whole, upper class women are going to be staying in their homes more and lower class women might have more opportunity to meet other Christians just being outside of their homes and, and in a work environment. All right, that that's helpful. One thing that might surprise Latter-day Saint readers who are looking at your chapter is how you unpack the structure of the early church. The records are a little bit difficult to figure out, right? We have the New Testament, and it talks about things like apostles, elders, deacons, 70s. Uh, and you find that these roles don't always match up with what the contemporary church does. So let's talk about what those roles look like in the New Testament, because women played parts in some of those roles in really interesting ways. Yes. So there, there is a lot of ambiguity, and I, I think that as an LDS scholar myself, that was something I had to come to grips with early on in my career. Um, I went in very sure that the early church was going to look a lot like the modern church, since we have a really strong kind of culture around that in the LDS church today. And what I found was a lot of ambiguity. You know, Paul had these terms for people. He was calling women apostles and deacons. He was calling men, other other men, deacons and apostles and elders that were not in the 12. And he he's very loose with those terms. And it really reflects the larger character of early Christianity in the first century. And really until the end of the first century, into the second century, you don't see like the hardening or formalization of a lot of these offices of of the office of bishop. It's not till the end of the first century where um, some prominent leaders of the church in these countries across the empire are saying, I'm I'm a bishop, and being a bishop is making me the heir of the original apostles and claiming that kind of authority and also minimizing the authority of women to kind of conduct churches in their own homes and in the way that they had been, saying, no, a bishop needs to be there if you're going to 
to do this or this or this, a bishop needs to be presiding. So it really, there's really a lot of hardening, shifting and the, the ambiguity as the offices are solidified over the first and second centuries. So the New Testament talks about female apostles. What did that look like? What was a, what's an example of that? Well, the most famous and the one that, that we really can point to is Junia. Um, Andronicus and Junia were a couple that Paul says were prominent among the apostles. If you go through the different translations of the Bible, it's so fascinating to look at uh, what they do with Junia at this prominent among the apostles, this particular Greek verb. Um, some of them want to translate it. Um, they're well known among the apostles. Like the apostles know who they are. They're great. <laughs> yeah. Others are, no, they are prominent among within the apostles, you know. And even if you look at some of the older translations of the Bible, they translate Junius' name as Junius. I mean, they want to understand her as a man because it's inconceivable through so many, you know, centuries since the beginning that Paul would call a woman an apostle. And it just gives a woman undue, you know, authority and an undue position. So um, it's really interesting. But now as we're looking back and, you know, feminist approaches to the New Testament have kind of opened up people's eyes to, you know, the possibility of this verb meaning many, many things, including, you know, that Junia, call, he's calling her an apostle. He's giving her this kind of status. It opens up to all sorts of theological possibilities for women. Deacons is another one, right? I, I know that. Yes. And, and I'm glad you mentioned translation, too, because you can find some translations that will have, I think, even the word deaconess in some instances and others that say, well, no, just call it deacons. And that can include uh, females. So what about the role of deacon? What what was that role? Yes, that that's another really contested and interesting part. Paul calls Phoebe a deacon of the church. Um, the, the word in if the King James Bible is translated as servant, a lot of people just translate it as servant. It sounds more generic, like, sure, she's a member of, you know, the church at, at Corinth. But as again, as, as, you know, feminist New Testament scholars going back and looking at this, they're saying, no, it, it, the word's actually translated as deacon elsewhere. Um, and Paul seems to actually be using it as a term to designate a special office that she has, that she holds in this church. And it might even suggest that she's his emissary and carrying the letter to the Romans, um, his, his most famous epistle. Also, if you look back at the translation history, some some churches want to translate or some some versions of the Bible are translated to say deaconess. But but the word is deacon properly. There's really not an office or an idea of deaconess being separate from deacon. And that's also really important because it, it connotes kind of a sameness with other people that he calls deacon. This is not a separate male, female orders. These are one order. And he's talking about a deacon. So it really also opens up a lot of theological possibilities for women when you consider that that's what he meant. So once you've let people know that these terms like apostles and deacons can be applied, are applied in the New Testament to uh, male and female individuals, you really start to unpack the things that early Christian women were doing, that they were teaching, they were missionaries, they were patrons. Let's talk about the actual practice of women in early Christianity, which wasn't just go sit and listen <laughs> and be taught and be baptized and that's all. What were early Christian women doing? Well, there's, you know, speculation or inference and some is in the Bible itself. I mean, Paul talks about women needing to cover their heads as they're praying and prophesying in church. So we know that women are praying and prophesying in church from, you know, Paul's own testimony of this in, in Romans. Um, we also can assume because 
these Roman aristocratic women are running, running house churches, churches in their own homes, um, we kind of can make some assumptions about what that would mean for what that would look like. Um, it was natural for these women to be presiding and leading. They were running households. And so when they were bringing people into their homes, they were running churches. They were probably presiding. They were probably leading in the prayer and conducting the worship and preaching and prophesying. And there's a, there's a part where, um, apostles witnessed the daughters of Philip prophesying and preaching. Um, so we have some, some references to women actively being involved in, um, the preaching and prophesying going on in the churches. We also have a lot of evidence that women were out as missionaries, that they were going actively traveling around with companions, sometimes with other females, most of the time with a husband or a brother or a son going around and telling, spreading the good message, spreading the, the word of of the gospel to other people. So they were very active in this. And um, the second century writer, Clement of Alexandria, records that even the apostles, all most of them have wives with them as they're traveling around preaching, that they were all married. So we see a lot of women, when we look back, really involved and active in the spreading of Christianity and in the churches themselves. Your chapter really helps unpack this. There's even um, a great diagram of a house there that shows like how a, how a house might have looked and might have been structured so that you could see where people are actually going and meeting. I mean, when we think of our church, we have these church buildings, or even where there's not a lot of our own buildings, people will gather at a, at a rented place or something like this. And then in some places within the church today, people are still meeting in homes, in, in places where the church isn't uh, doesn't have a lot of members. And we see this in early Christianity that they didn't have church buildings. They A lot of, especially the, the Jewish converts, obviously had been going to synagogue. They weren't doing Christian <laughs> meetings there. Um, they didn't have these places. And so homes of wealthier individuals and usually women, uh, or a lot of times women, uh, would be the place to do it. So people that check out the chapter can can get a better sense of that. Um, there's tension in the New Testament text as well. Uh, you mentioned Paul had talked about women um, praying and, and covering their heads, which contradicts something else from another epistle that that's said to be written by Paul, where he talks about women keeping silence in the church. Uh, yes. There are passages that say things like, man is the head of woman, just as Jesus is head of the church. Um, there's instruction like, women should not teach, they should be subject to their husbands. Um, how do you understand those passages that, that are really quite restrictive of how women could participate in the early church? Well, my first comment would be Paul was a really complex guy. I mean, he really, I think, supported the notion that there were, you know, no bond or free, no male or female in Christ, which he says in Galatians. But at the same time, he's still a Greco-Roman man. So there's going to be some conceptions about women's modesty, women's place, things women should or shouldn't do um, that are going to persist. At the same time, we see these, you know, more this very, this acceptance of women preaching and praying and prophesying in the church, which is, you know, really encouraging to modern women. But then we see, you know, other passages in First Corinthians referring to where he's saying, you know, women need to keep silence in the churches. That That's just totally at odds with what he says just a few chapters before that, where he says, just cover your heads up. You know, that's what, you know, the, the custom is if you're going to preach or pray or prophesy. Um, so we have this this later section kind of added on at the end of the chapter where he says, no, be quiet. And if you have any questions, ask your husband when you get home. And it just sounds so at odds. Um, and that's one of the reasons that many scholars today think that section's an interpolation, that it, it didn't originally belong to First Corinthians. 
it's kind of slapped on at the end of that chapter. And it's totally at odds with what he says earlier and with his other, you know, embrace of women and his, his other epistles and, and, and in the acts. So it just really doesn't seem to fit with his message. It also fits better with the message of later epistles in the New Testament, such as First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, which are going to to give women a more constrained role, which are going to tell them that they need to, you know, not talk, that they need to be more modest. Um, those those are called the pastoral epistles, and then the message just kind of fits fits in better with those. Now, now most scholars, almost all academic scholars, do not think most of those are actually writings of Paul. That they're later writings. So if we if we take that uh, section where he's telling women not to not to talk in church, and it looks a lot more like those. Most people, most scholars would agree that it's it's probably interpolation. It probably belongs to a later time. It wasn't original to the text. And that also would line up with the evidence that you have in the chapter about how the development of church offices for men began to squeeze out opportunities for women to be in leadership positions. So. Um, about what time period are we talking about when these these offices for men were coming into power and how they were replacing and sometimes outright opposing what women had been doing up to that point? Towards the end of the first century, you know, bishops start to kind of claim um, certain rights and authority. And the office of bishop was excluded to women already at this time. Um, and at this point, they, women are no longer allowed to it, it, well, bishops clarify that women may not baptize, they cannot preside over the, the Eucharist in their own homes, things like this. And into the second century, we see people like Tertullian coming up with big lists of things that women can't do, preaching in church, prophesying, um, they shouldn't be baptizing or presiding over the Eucharist. Tertullian's really important in the second century. He's a, a Latin writer, and he's a very influential throughout the church. And he he's really one of the first Roman elites, the Roman elite males who come into the church. He's, he's among a group of them, and they start kind of reimagining the church as a government. The, the original apostles had seen the, the call of the church to be to go and preach the gospel. And then in the second century, these Roman elites start to see it as the, the call of the leadership of the church is to govern the organization that the church has become. So as they come in, it starts to look more and more like the Roman government. It starts to be defined in terms of like what rights different offices would hold and in, in a very legalistic way that, that men, Roman men, would have understood their position as citizens of the Roman Empire. Um, and as that happens, they start to look at women and see, well, women don't actually have any rights in society in the Roman Empire. So maybe they don't, maybe they don't have the right to be a deacon or the right to be a bishop or an elder or presbyter. And these offices become more and more solidified and more and more codified towards men. Now, there are other offices we start to see rise the end of the second century, third century for women. There's a, there's the office of deaconess. But as I talked about in my book, it's kind of very limited. And a lot of the limitations are to things that would be inappropriate for men to do. Like deaconesses can anoint the naked body of a woman after she's been baptized. And deaconesses can go into houses where there's only women and, and teach, and men can't properly do that. So these offices are kind of born out of like just stuff, leftover stuff men can't appropriately do. And, and that's kind of what I'm wondering about and your thoughts about in terms of 
recognizing how culture helps shape faith. And sometimes in the church, we like to assume that everything is the way it is because, you know, this is exactly how God wants it to be without perhaps recognizing that we also have uh, sort of limited horizons from the newest member to the president of the church that that might impact the decisions that we make and and how we think that the, the church needs to run. So there's this tension between being unique but also connecting with the outside world, right? And I, I wonder, as the church was becoming more like the, like the Roman culture and governance, was that also a respectability move? Were they thinking like, okay, look, if we have all these women in all these leadership roles, <laughs> that's not going to look good when we're trying to convert people. Like, it's, well, our missionary message is not going to carry through if we do this. Certainly, yes. I mean, there's a lot of early there's a lot of slander in the period of early Christianity um, about, you know, Christians being lascivious, Christians, you know, eating flesh because they're taking Eucharist, and also just kind of Christians being kind of womanly, girly, uh, the the typical kind of, you know, um, gendered and sexual slanders that, you know, you see throughout history against various religious groups. But, I mean, Christians are, I think, very concerned at some point about, you know, how do we look to the outside? And in the, the second and third centuries, they start wanting to attract more middle and upper class people. They want to attract aristocrats. They want to find a way to include really rich people, even though Jesus had said, you know, you need to give your money away. They start negotiating the scriptures and, and, and forming the church so that there's a, a place of honor for these um, aristocrats and these these wealthy upper class people. They really do want that respectability, want that place in the Roman Empire. And of course, that culminates in, you know, 325 Constantine and you know the first Christian emperor. All right. So we've kind of looked at women in early Christianity and how they had particular roles that started to diminish over time. And you mentioned already, but we'll cover it a little bit more, that they're began to develop new roles for women from the second through the fourth centuries. Some new opportunities for women began. Uh, Orders of female deacons, for example. Widows had particular things that they were expected to do. And also the rise of virginity as this sort of ideal thing for certain women. In other words, it seems like there were roles that were being made for women that could empower them and give them opportunities, but at the same time that it would stop them from having other opportunities. It seems like a give and take of like, all right, we're going to empower women by kind of constraining them. It is. And this is, that's a great observation. It's it's really been a a point of discussion in, you know, in what I study, which is, you know, women and celibacy in early Christianity. There were, there was a lot of celebration in the scholarship in the 80s. Like, look, if women were celibates, they could travel, they could, you know, speak, they could teach, they had a lot of authority in the church, they could do all of these things. But, you know, then the later recognition by other scholars going, hey, wait a minute, what did they have to give up to have this? Nothing else but their families, their sexuality, their ability to marry if they wanted to, like all of these other things that women feel entitled to today. So yeah, there was a real pushback on the idea that these offices were like really freeing and liberating for women. Um, so you, you referred to deaconesses, which I, I talked about a minute ago, and then widows. The, the order of widows is kind of visible from First Timothy, where he, he just they, the author discusses widows and how they can enroll and receive support from the church if they're over 60 and they've been married once and they're not going to remarry, et cetera, et cetera. And the younger younger widows are told to go get married again. So we kind of see the formation of this special group of women in the church who who have support. And 
And over time, we see widows mentioned as a group who is asked to pray or, you know, intercede for the congregation. Um, but they, they don't have too many other functions. That The most we see is in the 5th century, there's a church document that talks about all the things widows shouldn't do, which gives us a nice idea of what the, the things they were trying to do probably were. <laughs> right. Going around and teaching and preaching, receiving donations to the church. So they were picking up the tithing, laying their hands on people and blessing them doing other all, all of these other things, um, and they're forbidden to do them in this church order. So we can assume that, that to that point, there was some ambiguity and probably some room for the widows to be doing these things. But as a whole, over time, we see that it's kind of an order where they get a lot of respect, a lot of lip service, but they don't, they don't do a lot of other things. They have some, they, they do have some freedoms to move around and travel and, and do some other things that, that women wouldn't have because they've promised to never have sex again. And then there's there's this order of virgins, this whole idea of asceticism, which is linked to the order of widows, which is if you if you will give up everything that, that makes you a woman in Roman society, which is basically marriage and childbearing, then we will give you some of the privileges that men have. Right. We might let you um, manage some of your own money or your own life. We might let you travel. And these very wealthy Roman women did. We see them traveling to Israel and around the whole Greco-Roman Empire, um, giving out money and founding churches and monasteries and, um, you know, preaching and, and reading scriptures and studying where, you know, most women's lives at the time would have been taken up with work or with childbearing. Um, so they, they do have some special privileges. This is, you know, a, a limited group of women. But the, the point of all this is, and I think you're kind of getting at it, is that Women do always find a way. If you, if you pull them out of offices, they will find another way to try to gain some authority, to try to have some voice. And that, and these offices are kind of given to them almost as a concession. Um, but they are very confined. And over time, you know, like with everything else, they start in, in a place where these, these virgins at first, like Thecla, I talk about the chapter has a lot of power, a lot of freedom, a lot of authority. And over time, that's clawed back by the men in charge too. They say, oh, well, that's too much. And Thecla was acting like a man. You're still a woman. You're a bride of Christ, actually. So you need to act like a bride, you know, if, you, if you're a virgin. Um, so these things are always clawed back over time, but, but women never give up. And that's one of the, the things that makes me the most proud to be a woman. And yeah, and I think some people would see that as some sort of power-hungry thing. In my experience, women are, are drawn just as men are to have spiritual experiences and to experience Absolutely. God's power in, in, in really magisterial ways. And when they're constrained from doing that, it's, I mean, the, the New Testament says the spirit blows where it lists, like uh, it's still going to work in people's lives. And so what, mm -hmm. what would you say to Latter-day Saint women today who feel, you know, someone who might read this chapter and see similarities of, of restrictions and opportunities? Uh, what, what would your message be to them? It's hard not to see the similarities. I mean, you know, we had some readers on the chapter. Uh, they had some external readers and some internal readers. Some of them were members of the church. Some of them were not members of the church on purpose. The non-members of the church were thought, thought that I wasn't pushing hard enough on some of those very points you were talking about. The members of the church, felt some of them felt very uncomfortable I didn't, I did not even push on these points in the chapter, as you noticed, but some of them were very uncomfortable just reading the trajectory. It's almost unavoidable that you start thinking about the trajectory of women in, in the LDS church, um, that, that they've taken since the founding of the church. And I really feel both sad, but also hopeful. And my, my hope really does lie 
in the in the promise of prophetic revelation as I end the chapter with. Um, I really feel like this move by um, President Oaks and then following President Nelson after President Oaks started talking about it, which in which women were finally acknowledged to actually exercise priesthood authority was huge. I find that to be an enormous step in the right direction. I really feel like the the theological groundwork is is being laid for further advancements in that direction. Um, I feel very hopeful, and I I feel very very happy when I think about that and when I look at that. It is easy to become frustrated at the pace at which we're moving towards, you know, what what is obviously to me like a restoration of many of these elements of the early church, where women are more full participants. It's hard as as a woman, as a well educated woman to not not desire the the great blessings that I feel and see come with the holding of priesthood offices. I have never talked to a man who said, I don't receive any blessings from having that calling or holding that priesthood office. That was lame. There's nothing there. You don't want it or need it. Like I've never talked to a man that can honestly tell me that. Um, so it's hard to not desire those those blessings for myself and for all women. And I, I really think, I really do believe that God and and that his prophets are moving in a direction where probably as fast as the entire body of the church can handle. There will be some who won't handle it. And there are already some who aren't handling it. But I, I think God wants the maximum number of blessings and spiritual experiences for the maximum number of people that he can. And I do believe that's the intention of, of LDS church leaders as well, which is why my faith is in them and in the church. Thanks for that. Before we go, is there any other big takeaway that you'd like Latter-day Saints to think about as they read your chapter and get to know early-day saints and think about their lives as Latter-day Saints? Are there any other big takeaways that you really want to drive home that maybe a lot of Latter-day Saints aren't familiar with? I would just end on the the point that I think I make, I started to make about the Articles of Faith. We claim to be a restoration of the primitive church, and we claim those offices. But when we look at it more carefully, um, that's not what the church really looks so much like today. And that's not what Joseph Smith was finding in the New Testament when he was looking at it. And that's okay. I think we might need some revision to this this idea that, you know, oh, if we see a woman exercising authority, she must have been the Relief Society president, you know, or she must have been because all the offices are the same. That's That's not how the church works or should work. Offices are constantly evolving and dying in a living church. They're constantly adjusting to revelation and to the needs of, of the people. And that's okay. And once we get there and kind of let go of this, we're, exa- we're doing exactly what has been done before. It really does open possibilities for women in the future. We can say, okay, if that's where revelation is taking us, who cares what happened in the past? We can be fully comfortable with that. We can also be more ready to receive, you know, further light knowledge that I, I think is out there. I think God wants to give us. To think about being like the primitive church includes flexibility, evolution, change, adaptation to environment, updated opportunities. So to really look like our early day saints, we would appreciate more the changes that can still happen. And to be like that early church, to be a restoration of it, is to be evolving and changing today like that the president Uchtdorf talked about the restoration is ongoing so I, that's really uh, that's yes. a great perspective all right that's ariel bybee lawton she's an independent historian in houston texas she earned her bachelor's in history from brigham young university and a master's and phd in religion from duke university she contributed to the new book ancient christians from the neely maxwell institute her chapter is called church organization priesthood office and women's leadership roles 
Ariel, thanks for spending this time introducing us to some of these early day saints. Thanks so much, Blair, and thanks for your excellent questions. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire.